2,400 children in Chicago lost parents to gun violence over a five-year period between 2016 and 2020. Let that number sink in for just a moment. A data analysis from the Washington Post also reveals that hundreds of children in the U.S. not only lost parents, but witnessed their shooting deaths. It's a little discussed aspect of America's gun violence epidemic, but one that has major ramifications for thousands of families in our area and beyond. Washington Post Enterprise reporter John Woodrow Cox featured the stories of Chicagoans who have witnessed the murder of their parent and explored the effects that trauma can have. And he joins us now. Hi, John. Hi, thanks for having me. Also with us is O.G. Eggleston, executive director of the organization Chicago Survivors. Welcome, O.G. Thanks for having me. John, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around that stat that I just mentioned. 2,400 Chicago kids lost parents to gun violence in five years. That's nearly 10 a week. Yeah, it's a, it's a, staggering, it's a staggering figure uh, for, for a single city. And, you know, these kids are largely invisible. Um, you know, we, uh, their parents are often represented in, uh, you know, three paragraph stories in the, in the local paper. And uh, sometimes they'll say, you know, father of two or mother of three, and, and that's it. Uh, but the way that these things impact those kids' lives is enormous. I mean, it, it derails uh, their life. And, and it's, of course, even worse if they were there to uh, witness the shooting themselves. Yeah. What do we know, John, about the demographics of the families affected here? And where do they live exactly? So, you know, we know uh, because we did a, a breakdown of where these shootings occurred and because we know that, you know, many shootings occur close to where people live. Um, you know, these happen consistently in, in the same neighborhoods. You know, the story includes a, uh, a map that, you know, breaks down where each of them occurred. And we know, too, that this is overwhelmingly uh, black and Hispanic um, parents who are being killed. It, it was uh, really a, a, a staggering uh, number. It was more than 96% of the parents lost to gun violence in that period were black or Hispanic. Uh, and they tended to be um, concentrated in just a few neighborhoods. For your story, you do give particular attention to the a subset of these kids, right? The, the ones who actually witnessed their own mom or their own dad get shot and killed. Why'd you focus on that particular group? Well, this uh, this piece was a part of a series. You know, the first uh, the first piece in the series ran a few weeks ago, or I'm sorry, a few months ago, and it was it was uh, sort of a, a sweeping story that was meant to capture how many kids lose parents to gun violence across the country. And we know that um, more than 40 children lose a parent uh, to shootings every single day uh, in this country. But I, through that reporting, I realized that a great many children were also there. They were sitting in the, the back seat. They were, you know, in the living room mm -hmm. when uh, their father killed their mother. And the, the, the glimpses that I got into the effects of those shootings on those kids told me that uh, here again was an area of gun violence that we have simply overlooked as a country. And the deeper I dug into the effects on these children who I featured, uh, the more that proved true. Um, we just haven't begun to comprehend what it is that we allow to happen to our children. And these are children who are not considered victims of anything. Legally, our system says they're, they're not victims, which wow. means getting support, getting the help that they need is often incredibly difficult. 
OG, let me bring you into the conversation here. Talk more about your group, Chicago Survivors. I know that you work directly with people who have lost loved ones to, to gun violence. Yeah, that's correct. Um, so basically, the mission of Chicago Survivors is to provide resources to family members that lose a loved one to homicide in the city of Chicago and surrounding areas. And that can come in the form of free therapy to all family members that are in the home. If there are two different households, we provide services to both households. And this is from the womb to um, senior citizens. And we also provide crisis funds for those homes, intensive case management, and referrals. We're basically, we're basically set up to be there for families to meet whatever needs they have to start them on the journey to healing. Mm-hmm. So what's your reaction to the stat that I mentioned earlier? 2,400 Chicago kids lost a parent to gun violence in the last five years at a rate of nearly 10 per week. Yes, yes, very daunting statistics. And, you know, before I started with Chicago survivors, a homicide was like the tip of the iceberg for me. It was a a statistic, something I saw on the news, something that I read, but now working for Chicago survivors for the last two years, I understand what's taking place underneath the surface. And when we're talking about such statistics as 2,400 kids that have witnessed, you know, the death of a, um, a caregiver or of a, a mother or father, mm-hmm. that's what lies below the surface. That's the trauma that's missing school, that's not engaging with their peers, that's viewing the world through a filter that a child should not have to view the world, thus the importance for the service, the uh, clinical services that we provide to once again show the necessary and focused support that the kids need. Yeah, the impacts here are just lifelong I can imagine, for these kids. John, you you walk readers in detail through what happened in the life of a Chicago girl named Kanaya and and how it just changed her forever. Can you tell us her story? Who is she and and what did she experience? Sure. So uh, Kanaya is now 13, um, but when she was seven years old, uh, she was sitting in the backseat of her car with um, her brother, who was uh, just a, uh, an infant still and her mother and father were in the front seat and they were parking, um, you know, near their home in Chicago and, and somebody popped out of an alley and, and opened fire. And, uh, you know, one thing that struck me about her was that she uh, has forgotten so much about her father who was killed that day. He was shot nine times, mm-hmm. um, but she remembers everything about that moment uh, in vivid detail. Um, she listened to him take his last breath. And, wow. you know, what has stuck with her, and this is different for every kid, but what has lingered with her is fear. You know, and it's not obvious. You know, she doesn't, um, she, her, her trauma is not obvious, but she thinks about it all the time, so much so that when she, you know, posts uh, something on uh, Instagram or TikTok, when, mm-hmm. she shares a, uh, when she shares a photo with, with a friend, she thinks about that first. She, she blurs out the background in her apartment. And she, when she's outdoors, she thinks about the buildings that are behind her because she it lives in constant fear. Uh. The man who killed her father will someday come for the rest of her family too. She lives in hiding now. You know, they, they left Chicago because of that shooting. And it's shaped every aspect of her life. And it continues to. And it will for years and decades to come. So so they left Chicago, the, the, the family, and it sounds like she d- didn't immediately recognize that there was some trauma there that she was still 
needing to unpack. Did she get any help, though, to, to cope or heal? She, she, she got some therapy in the early going, and her therapist thought, you know, she, at this moment she's doing well. Um, you know, and on the surface, on the surface, she is doing well. You know, she makes great grades. She has lots of friends. She's social. Um, you know, but she's even protective of her own mother. You know, she, when I was reporting this story, she revealed to me that she has this recurring nightmare all the time of this person uh, chasing her, a person in a hoodie uh, chasing her. The, the man who, who took her father's life was in a hoodie. And I'm sitting there and she's, she's sharing this and her mother uh, is hearing it for the first time yeah. because her mother's trauma is enormous. You know, her mother was shot uh, multiple times. Her jaw was blown off. Um, and she had major reconstructive surgery. And, and so, you know, here you have a 13-year-old girl who's been through loss, trauma uh, of her own, and she's protective of her mother's loss and trauma because yeah. so she, she's reluctant to share too much, right? And, and so the complexity of what this does to families, the ripple, it's so much deeper than we realize when we just see that news article that says, you know, person killed on uh, this certain street corner. It's yeah. just so much deeper than that. Oji, does this story uh, of Kanaya's, does that sound familiar to you? Certainly it does. And thus, we have crisis responders who are tasked to be at the scene of a crime within two to four hours, basically wherever the body is. And one of the key responsibilities of our crisis responders, we call them CRs, is to assess the need of the family in real time. And so if they recognize that a child witnessed the crime, so there's basically four simple questions that they ask, and one of those questions is, did the child witness the crime? If they did, then there's an immediate referral to our youth clinical team mm-hmm. who will then provide, who will reach out to the family immediately to try to provide the therapy that's necessary to start that child towards healing. And then also what was mentioned was the delay in showing signs of trauma in children. Yes. Trauma process, I mean, kids process trauma very differently than adults. And then a lot of times when an adult in the home loses their life, the other adults are tending to funeral arrangements. They're going through their own grief and children tend to fend for themselves. Thus the need for the assessment that the crisis responders do on the scene of the sign, on the, at the scene of the crime for an immediate referral. But also we have family support specialists that work with the adults in the home. Mm-hmm. So when they make first contact in the home, they also are tasked with doing an assessment to see if there are any kids that live in the home. Yeah. And if there are, through their assessment, they can also make the referrals to our um, youth clinicians. And one last thing. We're in, for this particular um, conversation, we're talking about children that witness the crime, but also think about the kid that witnesses the crime scene, which oh, yeah. is also very daunting for kids as well. So our, our youth clinical team has various toolkits, um, tools within our toolkit to provide the yeah. therapy that the children need. It can be play therapy. It can be narrative therapy. We have a tree of life model that we use now, which uses the tree as a symbol which allows kids to change the narrative of the story around that loss of life. Right. They can, you know, they have the soil, which represents something, the tree, the branches, and, and it shows that there are a lot of supportive resources in their environment. They create a story associated with that and then task. And then they're also tasked with showing the goals that they want to reach. And all of this is done showing a reduction in PTSD symptoms and mm-hmm. an increase and daily functioning, which are those, you know, different things that show that they're living a somewhat normal life after their loss. Sticking with you for another brief moment here, OG, 
in John's reporting, you know, it says uh, children who have witnessed a parent shot and killed, they're, quote, seldom researched. What could more research do for these kids? Um, One, I think the research will basically highlight the need for those children without, you know, specific statistics, without various research, there is not necessarily supportive data would justify the resources that are necessary to allow these kids to heal. And what does that translate to? Research translate to support, support translate to funding, increased mental health support for children, increased funding, which will allow more mental health specialists to be in the communities, uh, underserved communities, which are already, um, which already have low levels of mental health support. And that's one reason as an organization, we're partnering with CPS schools because CPS schools can be community hubs in a lot of instances in various communities. And we can bring, we bring our services directly to the school system where we provide support to teachers and staff so they can identify symptoms of trauma. Like if a kid is acting out, it could be a symptom of trauma, just not just a typical behavioral issue. And also vicarious trauma that teachers are experiencing by being in the communities where a lot of homicides take place. John, we're almost out of time, but I I don't want to leave without getting into uh, another child that you wrote about, Tyler Simmons. Mm-hmm. Quickly tell us his story. Sure. So, um, you know, Tyler uh, had grown up in Chicago, uh, ended up moving with his mother to uh, Texas in eighth grade, uh, was back visiting his freshman year, his father, um, and they were on their way to the airport. Uh, he was His dad was going to put him on a plane to head back to Texas. And Tyler said, you know, I'd like to get some crunchy curls um, before I go back. He wanted to show off to his friends in Texas, his favorite Chicago snack. And you know, they go into a corner store, uh, walk out, and um, they got caught in a crossfire. And his father was you know, shot right in front of him. And, you know, what Tyler has dealt with um, all these years, he's, he's 19 now, he's 15 then, is guilt. Uh, so it was so his, not the you know, fear like right, Anaya. Right. It's guilt, right? Because, because he, he wanted that snack, right? So he has, has been incapable of really forgiving himself of just wanting a snack. And of course he had nothing to do with his father's death. He didn't do anything wrong, but convincing himself of that has been, uh, nearly impossible because, um, you know, it's always in his mind. What, what if I just hadn't asked, what if I hadn't asked? And again, you know, this is a kid who it shaped every aspect of his life, uh, since then. Uh, so, uh, you know, we, we just, as a society, so much of the work that I do is meant to just open people's eyes to the scope of this problem. And to uh, OG's point, uh, so much of this comes down to money, right? It really is. If people don't know these kids exist, they're not going to fund the support that they need. And right. it is about money, right? It's it's about saying, we've got to have people in place who can treat these children and go into these neighborhoods. And if we don't know they exist, that, that step never comes. We'll have to leave it there for now. We've been speaking with O.G. Eggleston of Chicago Survivors and Washington Post Enterprise reporter John Woodrow Cox. Now, you can find his story at WashingtonPost.com. He's also the author of the book Children Under Fire, an American Crisis. O.G. and John, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.